Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have back on the show today, Sean McDowell, Dr. Sean McDowell. He's got a PhD in apologetics and worldview studies from Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Two MAs, one in philosophy, one in theology, both from Talbot School of Theology. He is a, uh, an associate professor at um, Biola University and Talbot School of Theology. He's a writer, he's a speaker, he's an apologist, meaning he specializes in defending the faith. Sean's been a good friend over the years. He, he's a, just an absolute cool dude. He's super humble. Um, yes, he comes from the line of the McDowells, namely Josh McDowell, who is one of the most popular Christian authors in the 20th century. So Sean and I talk about um, his forthcoming book, Chasing Love, Sex, Love, and Relationships in a Confused Culture. Now, some of you might remember that his dad, Josh McDowell, was a huge um, uh, advocate. Oh, see, I'm going to get it wrong because he actually clarified some of this. I I always assumed that uh, Josh McDowell was a main leader in the so-called purity movement. Um, but Sean actually added some correctives to that early on in this podcast. You'll see, because that, that, you know, I, I've, have spoken, uh, out somewhat critically of the purity movement, as many of you would probably also speak out critically of it. Not that there wasn't some good things in it, um, or some good goals, but there was just some themes that were unhelpful. We talked about that in this podcast, but, um, yeah, anyway, my, my big question to Sean was, Hey, is this book? Um, basically kind of another purity book and he, well, yeah, you'll see how he answers that. It's, it's, it's a little more complicated than I thought it was going to be. So it was really helpful. Hey, if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash theology in the raw support the show for as little as five bucks a month and get access to premium content. Um, is that it? I thought I had another announcement. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Losing my mind here. Hey, let's dig into this. Please welcome back to the show for the second time, the one and only Dr. Sean McDowell. Hey, friends, I'm here with my uh, friend, Sean McDowell. Uh, Sean, I think this is your second time being on Theology and Raw. Is that right? Do you remember? It is. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Last year we, we were on chatting. You're probably on a lot of podcasts, I imagine, so it's probably hard to keep up. <laughs> well, I, I do a decent amount. I enjoy it. It's, it. it's fun, but I've been looking forward to coming back with you. Yeah, cool. Well, hey, let's just go ahead and jump into it. Um, I mean, I, I you know, I'm... I, I do a pre-recorded intro, which I haven't done yet, but people watching or listening have already seen it. So it's just this weird time warp thing we're in right now. But um, I'm sure people know who you are, uh, if they didn't already know who you are, um, because I probably in the future have introduced you already. <laughs> it's like back to the future. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about your book. Uh, it's coming out in December. Uh, Chasing Love. Is that the title? Yeah, that's right. Okay, now this is, uh, I'll just set it up. This is in, in some way related to your dad's really well-known book, um, uh, Why True Love Waits. Is that the original title? Yeah, so in, in the 80s, he launched a movement called Why Wait? Right. And it was probably, as far as I know, the first global sexual purity campaign, abstinence campaign that was really coming out of the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s. And originally called Why Wait? 
Okay. And what there was a book and there was a video series and he was speaking around the world doing big events. And I think what was unique about that is at the time he's launching this thing, I'm like 12, 13, 14 years oh. old. So I am going through those changes in my life and we're having conversations around the dinner table and in the car. I mean, he just brings the stuff up all the time related to sexual purity. We talk about STDs at dinner. He'd talk about some story of sexual purity and the scriptures. Like it was just, he gets set on something and is just, you know, yeah. kind of consumes him to be able to accomplish it. So growing up, we just had these conversations all the time. So it's interesting to look back now and just think through, hey, what might I do differently? What did I benefit from? So it's just, it's a unique perspective, I think, to have. So, I mean, just to get the elephant out of the room, I mean, a lot of people are listening like, whoa, like, is this, like, I was totally damaged by purity culture and I almost lost my faith or I have all this shame and you know, all the, the negative effects that some people have had as a result of purity culture, or, or I don't want to say, I don't want to draw a straight line that it's from purity culture necessarily, but within that environment, I'll keep it more yeah, um, without assuming uh, correlation and causation, but um can you maybe um, I want to ultimately get to your perspective on well yeah why don't we just start there what is your perspective on purity culture and and then I want to get to maybe some similarities and differences between your book and um, your dad's original book so my dad started this in the eighties into early nineties. And that was before a lot of the wave of purity culture that a lot of this criticism is pushing back on. I mean, I've read every academic book. I have gotten all the articles, talked with folks. Not that people might not differ with him on issues, but when you look at purity culture, it's usually 90s into the early 2000s or so with the Joshua Harris book yeah. in the late 90s. That's typically what it's referred to. Most people either weren't there in the 80s or they just <laughs> don't recall. So there there are some differences that are there when you come to purity culture between why wait and between I kiss dating goodbye. Okay. There's some significant differences in the approach that often get lumped in together. And that doesn't mean there's not areas I would differ with my yeah. dad on. But I can tell you, I look back and I'm grateful yeah. uh, in the home of the person leading the 80s. <laughs> and I don't think he really used the term sexual purity campaign. Wouldn't even use that term at that time. Yeah. Um, I, I have nothing but gratitude personally for my experience growing up in the home of one of the people who really launched the movement, yeah. to be honest with you. And I tell you, I, I tell my dad when I differ with him yeah. on issues. So, you know, True Love Wait started in 1993 and kind of came out of the Why Wait campaign, so to speak, and had a little bit of different message, a little bit of a different approach, all that overlapped. Okay. And then you just see a launch, a, a number of different resources and ministries kicking into the 90s and 2000s that as far as I know, are typically what characterizes purity culture. What are some of the differences then? I would love to hear the yeah, differences between the early proto-purity culture. That's my, that's my Maybe that's not even a helpful term, but I, I see what you mean, um, the 80s and early yeah. 90s. Yeah, so what are the differences between that and the full-blown kind of purity culture in the Joshua Harris days? Well, I, I guess I would say a couple things. And one of the differences between, say, my, my father's approach and my weight and the Joshua Harris approach would be Joshua Harris was clearly saying all dating is sinful by definition and that you have to follow, you know, kind of the the pattern that they laid out with parents that are involved and you just don't date hmm. one bit. 
that was not the message that came out of why wait. It was, hey, date responsibly and have boundaries. Mm -hmm. That was at least the message that my dad taught and pushed that I think is a little bit more balanced. Yeah. Um, a, a second one is I don't why wait had no promise that said if you stay sexually pure, you'll get this endless sexual bliss <laughs> in your marriage in the future of what's the sexual prosperity gospel. That ah. just wasn't a part of it. Now they elevated marriage and I would have loved looking back to see more talk about singleness. Yeah. You know, we can talk about some ways that I would look back differently, but those are two huge differences. Between yeah. the purity culture and I think what's in why you know I kiss dating goodbye and the why wait message itself amongst others, that's super helpful because that 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 promise that sexual uh, purity gospel that's kind of a big piece of the purity movement that really caused oh. a lot of uh, heartache I think in some people that you know uh, did all the right things and then either didn't get married or got married and the husband turned out to be a jerk or they realize sex is a lot more complicated and sometimes painful, not enjoyable for a lot of people. And yeah. I mean, it's, that's a big piece, isn't it? Isn't that one of the major critiques of, of you know, purity culture? It, it is. And I'll tell you one of the other critiques too, is I, I've met so many people who said, I remember a girl asked me, I was speaking at a Christian college. She said, I've been told my whole life that sex is bad. How am I supposed to get married and just flip that switch? Yeah. And so many people who are like, I've been told, you know, there's fireworks on your, honeymoon night and yet my entire mindset was sex is bad and all of a sudden I'm supposed to just think it's good like this doesn't even feel possible mm -hmm. to me I think that and I don't know exactly who to blame for that because there's curriculum and there's books and yeah. then there's youth pastors and parents and teachers who teach this stuff and put their own spin on it you know I mean there's yeah. so many levels to this but I could tell you I mean if anything my dad erred on the side of like sex is beautiful mm. it's awesome it's wonderful like not this it's terrible it's bad it's horrible and then flip the switch yeah, yeah. so that was just that was just a difference in 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 my experience now I think purity culture aired if you took that message even further and I think one of the mistakes was the wider culture would say you know free sex is awesome this is where life is liberating and great and the church would say you think you've had good sex. No, no, no. Come to the church. Yeah. It's even better. <laughs> We're the one who has the corner on good sex. And that became a selling point. Okay. So I don't recall my dad pushing it that way. That wasn't part of the why wait campaign, at least at the beginning. But yeah. I think that's how sometimes it got twisted in purity culture too. Okay. Either it's bad, it's dirty, it's wrong, or it's so great, it's even better than the world's sex. <laughs> and that balance in the middle that says, hey, God designed sex to be between a man and a woman. And there's something fulfilling and flourishing and beautiful and good. Yeah. I mean, read the Song of Solomon yeah. about biblical sexuality. But if you're looking to this for your fulfillment, if you think this is going to bring your life meaning, yeah. you're going to be disappointed. And that's not the motivation yeah. for being sexually pure. That's helpful. I, you know, another piece that I often hear, and I've said this before on my podcast, but I, for those who haven't heard me say it, like even though I was, I was very much raised and nurtured in the era of purity culture, I don't even – I didn't ever heard the term. I never read mm. I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I remember a few people at my school talking about it. It was a thing, and then we moved on. Um, so I don't yeah. even remember learning about purity culture till 
like 10 years ago. <laughs> I was like, wait, that was my era. How did I miss that? You know? Um, so I have a weird, like I'm, I have a, I'm kind of ba- in a backwards way, kind of learning about the very environment that I was nurtured in. Um, but even then, like my, I, you know, I became a Christian late nineties. And even then I wasn't, I kind of went straight to college and buried my head in the book. So it wasn't, I don't, I don't think I felt the impact of it, but one other thing I've heard from people is this whole idea of being damaged goods, you know, like if you mess up, yeah, yeah, premarital sex. And it's almost like, yeah, um, all this shame and like, you're done, you ruined yourself, your husband. And these aren't the exact words, but that's kind of the impression people have felt. Um, would you, yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Did you see that in the, either the phase one or phase two of the purity era or yeah i think that's a great question i i agree with you i mean i i grew up in a christian home but a lot of this purity culture hit i mean i graduated high school 94 graduated college 98 Mm -hmm. and yet i never heard of it called purity culture until i think later looking back people try to characterize it And I think there's some value in doing that. But the problem is you get so many messages, so many books, so many campaigns lumped in together that it doesn't always make careful distinctions between the message that was taught. I mean, look, even even in Joshua Harris's book, there's a beautiful chapter on forgiveness. I love the chapter on forgiveness that's in there about this library and he pulls out these different cards and he feels guilty and it's wiped away. Like I love that metaphor he uses of forgiveness. Now that's not to say there wasn't maybe an over <laughs> overemphasis on if you're sexually pure, then you are completely pure. Like our spirituality reduces to our sexuality. And if you've had sex once, you're damaged good. I, I understand how that message was pushed and how it was – how it was taken in by people. I mean, that's a, that's a destructive message. But forgiveness was always a piece of the larger sexual purity culture, maybe just not put in balance and emphasized okay. as much as it should have been. No, that's good. Why don't we jump to um, your book? So tell us the gist of Chasing Love um, and, yeah, maybe some differences between – because I imagine people are going to see your name – they're going to think back and maybe even made the same kind of conflation that I made that like lumping your dad with all forms of purity culture. And I've even heard, I think I heard sure. one person even say, gosh, is Sean, you know, is he just reinventing the purity culture again? I'm like, I don't I know, Sean, pretty sure that's not what he's yeah. doing in the, yeah. in the sense that you think, you know, he might be doing, but yeah, tell us about the book and what maybe some differences, similarities and differences between uh, the purity culture broadly conceived. Yeah, so I, I, I love this question, and I think a lot of people, to be honest with you, when I hear them say, oh, this or that purity culture, I'll ask a few questions. What exactly are you referring to? What have you read? Yeah. And most people have read a couple articles yeah. and maybe had an experience from being in youth group. But I went back, and I've read, I mean, tons of these books that critique purity culture, some of the original books, and the narrative that we here largely, especially in the secular culture when this has shown up in publications, is not always fair and accurate to purity culture as a whole. Now, does that mean there weren't mistakes in purity culture? No, I'm not saying that. But I've seen a lot of critiques that are exaggerated, not balanced, and kind of carry with them a certain agenda to shame the church that's just not always as balanced as it could be. And you and I have seen that happen, I think, on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So – one of the things that was cool for me is to go back and relook at the stuff my dad taught, relook at True Love Weights, look at how culture shifted, and just say, okay, what's it going to look to teach kids about sexuality today? 
what are differences in how I'm going to do this? So I broke the book up into three sections. The first one is just kind of framing the issue. The middle is where I get into issues of sexuality. So marriage, singleness, um, uh, the nature and purpose of sex. And then in the last section, I do the questions of like sex abuse, pornography, uh, LGBTQ questions. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about what our design and purposes first and then talk about some of the deep questions that come up. That's just how I chose to organize it. But essentially, I frame this with a couple of big questions. Number one, can really right at the beginning, I talk about how the, the title that, uh, that Lifeway gave me was Chasing Love. And I said, you know what? What our culture says is you are chasing this love to fill yourself up mm-hmm. and give yourself meaning. If I just find that spouse... My life will be meaningful. And I thought, you know what? That's not the gospel. Mm. The gospel is I got to seek first to love God and love other people. And then all these things shall be Mm. added unto me. So I start the book by saying you're probably picking this up thinking that you're going to learn some tips how to find the right spouse, get (laughs) fulfilled. That's not it. That actually is downstream. The first question is, am I going to live my life for a bigger cause? And that involves loving God and loving other people. And then guess what? Then you find you have a meaningful life, even if it doesn't turn out based on the script of what our culture says. So I kind of start off and just reframe it for students a little bit. Mm. And then, you know, some of the big issues at the beginning is I talk about trust. I'll say, and you and I have discussed this. I'll say, when it's all said and done, the question is, can you trust God? Can you trust the character of the person who designed sex, Mm -hmm. even if you don't understand it? Even if it doesn't make sense, are you going to believe that God is good and has your best interest in mind? Mm -hmm. That's really the heart of the question for me because kids are being hammered with this – with questions of – you know, they're just being hammered with a worldly view of sexuality. Mm -hmm. And when it's all said and done, I think in the back of their minds is the Bible's old. It's antiquated. God is really stealing my fun, which in some ways is nothing new. And so I frame it right at the beginning. Can you trust the character of this God mm-hmm. whose scripture says is good? That's something I'm thankful my my parents did teach me is they would say over and over again that, you know, like in Deuteronomy chapter 10, when Moses says, you know, love Lord God, their heart, your soul, mind, and strength, here's commandments for you mm-hmm. that I'm giving you for your good. Yeah. I think it's Psalms 119 when David says, you know, he loves the law of the Lord. Mm-hmm. That's the heart of the question. Then I frame it by defining love, comparing and contrasting the world definition of love, biblical love, compare and contrast freedom. I think young people are totally confused about the nature of freedom. Yeah. Talk about forgiveness and then jump into the middle section. And one last thing I did, and then I'll I'll be quiet, <laughs> been rambling, is the middle section is that's where I talk about marriage, singleness, and the purpose of sex. Wow. But in a lot of sexual purity campaigns, What's been left out is any real discussion about singleness. Mm-hmm. It's tagged on at the end. Yeah. So I switched the order and I talked about the first section is on sex, God's design for sex, its purpose. Then in the middle, I did singleness. And then at the end of that section, tagged on marriage because scripture says, you know, marriage and singleness are two equal honoring ways yeah. to follow the Lord. And every kid reading right this, whenever they read it, is single anyways. So that's just a balance that I brought in just as much time talking about singleness as I do marriage as I do the purpose of sex. Did you, is, is your audience like Gen Z or 
younger millennials or do you have a specific target audience in mind? Yeah, this book is for students. Students. So okay. I I would say at the lower end, like 12, you know, and okay. I didn't write it for 12 year olds, but I had my daughter read it. I was like, hey, if you read it, give me feedback. I'll, you know, I'll buy you some shoes. And she's <laughs> like, dad, there's an outlet. I can get two for the price of one. I was like, fine. Okay. You're a business person. <laughs> so she actually read it and we just talked through the whole book together. So there were certain things a little bit yeah. above her head. So it's written primarily for high school students. Okay. Okay. Wow. What? Yeah. Gosh. Um, what are you seeing? I mean, you, you've been dealing, you know, teaching and speaking to younger people. And as you get older, you know, that your former younger people, millennials are now having kids and yeah, some, some millennials are actually, I think could be grandparents now, <laughs> which is really weird to think about. I mean, wow. if you take the statistic, I mean, a, a old millennial <laughs> could be like 38 or something. And anyway, sure. um, uh, what are some challenges, unique challenges you're seeing as you speak to Gen Z, having done a lot of youth work over you know a couple decades, some unique challenges to Gen Z that you're seeing kids wrestle with when it comes to sex and sexuality? You know, I, I one of my masters is in philosophy, and I'm always thinking of like undergirding ideas that shape the way kids think. Yeah. And I'll tell you about a conversation I had recently. I was at a Christian school and there was maybe 10 or 12 students who had been in Christian families, Christian education. They were juniors and seniors. And uh, the teacher said, hey, talk to them about basically anything you want. I was like, okay. So I decided to try something. I said, tell me, how would you define freedom? Not political freedom, but what is it? Actually, the way I worded it, I said, what does it mean to be a person who is free? And they talked amongst themselves, came back, and they said the free person is someone who can do anything they want to do as long as no one gets hurt. I said, course, okay, yeah. that's an interesting definition. <laughs> and then I, and then we chat about it for a while, and I said, okay, would your definition of freedom change if God exists? Like it, imagine God is real. Does that change how we should think about freedom? So they talk amongst themselves. They come back, and they said, well – now, if God exists, freedom is doing whatever you want to do as long as no one get hurt, gets hurt, but now there's consequences. Oh, gosh. Now, let that sink in for a minute. <laughs> there's consequences. You might get judgment in the afterlife, and in this life, maybe you'll feel guilty. So, Preston, in the minds of these Christian kids in a great Christian home and a great Christian church, all God adds to the matrix of freedom is consequences. That's it. Wow. So here's kids in great Christian families, great Christian home who have completely imbibed a secular view of freedom. No wonder our message of sexual purity falls short because they're funneling through, well, am I hurting anybody? Am I the author of my life? If not, mm -hmm. you know, what's the big deal? And so, I mean, this conversation went on, but I basically said to him, I said, okay, I want you to describe for me, come up with the person on earth who's most free. <laughs> so they talk amongst themselves, they come back and they said, well, the metaphor we have is someone who's on an island alone, who can do anything they want to do because they couldn't hurt anybody and nobody could stop them. That person is totally free. And it dawned on me, I thought, man, and I've done this a few times and you get a pretty similar response. It hit me, I thought, gosh, these kids are basically, they understand freedom from, right? There's a sense where you're only free if you can make decisions and nobody's stopping you. 
but they don't understand what Os Guinness calls freedom for, which yeah. is like, you know, if I take my AirPods, I've got to understand what they're designed for and use them according to their design. Well, ironically, the Bible says we've been made for relationship with him and for other people. So the very person they described as most free is actually least free because they're not able to be in relationship with other people. So for me, a lot in this book is I get into the real practical stuff for students. At the end of every chapter, I have a little section that says, you know, how do I, you know, whatever tough, I came up with a tough 30, the top 30 toughest questions kids are asking about sexuality. And every chapter I end with a real practical nugget. But I thought, gosh, I can't write this book and not challenge kids to think through what does it mean from a Christian standpoint to be free? Because mm-hmm. I think if they buy a secular view of freedom, it almost doesn't matter what else you and I right, say right. until they understand what we have been designed for in terms of relationship mm-hmm. and that we're only free in relationship with God and healthy relationships with other people regardless of how we feel about it that that their definition of freedom the, I, I feel like that that's that would resonate with i mean basically any, any almost everybody outside the church and a huge number of people in the church not just youth but the idea yeah. that um if it's consensual if it's not hurting anybody um then kind of what's wrong with it i mean you and i we, you know we deal with you know same-sex sexuality conversations a lot and that is one of the top questions I get is like, hey, this mm-hmm. relationship isn't hurting anybody. Therefore, what's wrong with it? As if not hurting anybody mm-hmm. kind of exhausts our ethical, you know, <laughs> right, reasoning. Right. Um, it, it was, um, I don't know if you, have you read uh, Jonathan Haidt's uh, The Righteous Mind? One of my, my, my audience is going to be sick of me hearing, hearing me. Almost every other episode, I recommend it. Um, it. Have you heard of it or? I have it on my, uh, to re- it's, I, to listen to, but I haven't okay. listened to it. So it, it I've heard you, I listen to your podcast. I've heard you talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, what's fascinating is here he is a secular atheist Jew. Very, mm. I mean, Ray's very liberal. Now he'd be more just kind of moderate, um, left of center. Um, but he said, you know, he was just steeped in this like harm, you know, safety kind of ethical reasoning. And and it wasn't until he uh, spent some time in India outside of America that he realized, Oh, that that's a very Western modern way of ethical reasoning that I just thought was just ethical reasoning abstract. Like this is just how you reason ethically. And he realized there's all kinds of other things like respect for authority and sanctity and you know, like all these other ethical impulses and his whole motivation in that was it was political because he was at that time on the far left and he was like look democrats keep not getting their way because they're only appealing to one ethical impulse safety and harm whereas republicans are appealing to these other ethical impulses that are just from an ev- evolutionary standpoint mm-hmm. embedded in the heart of humanity respect for authority de- desecration like there's just something about you know mopping the floor with an American flag and then wiping your butt with it. That's just like, well, that's not harming anybody, but it's just, there's, it tugs at your, eth- you're like, ah, I just, I don't yeah. feel good about that. And he's, and his whole thing was trying to challenge the left <laughs> as someone on the left 
to yeah, say, yeah. let's tap into these other ethical impulses that are resonating with every human person. And he didn't realize that till he had he, till he went outside of America. Anyway, um, what's fascinating with what you said, though, is like even from a basic neurological standpoint, we now know that it's not freedom to be able to do whatever you want. If you do whatever you want, you start enslaving yourself to these habits that rewire your brain and are destructive for yourself. Even if they bring you pleasure and loads of dopamine, like we, (laughs) so it, it, oh man, I just, um, but what's disturbing for me is how many Christians just naturally think that way. Where did that do? I mean, you're a philosopher. Where did that come from? Is that always been there? Is there something recent in the cultural shift where people would think of freedom as the freedom to do whatever I want to do and not even really think through what that would look like practically for society? So that's a great question. I don't know the historical roots of where that came from. I mean, in some ways you see it all the way back in the garden. In some way it's nothing totally new, the same appeal. But I think Haidt is absolutely right that in Western culture, it's just this individualism that has developed over time. I mean, going back to philosophers, 17th, 18th, 19th century, you remove God from the picture. And there's a sense where I'm ultimately the authority of my own life. I think that would be a, a picture of how it's been been pushed onto us. But I, you know, with, with students, I try to think through how do I get to counter some of these ideas in their minds? So one of the examples I I put in the book that I talk with these students about, I said, what does it mean to be free when you play a piano? What does it mean if you're free? Am I free to just sit down and bang keys and, you know, make random noise? And they're like, yeah, you're free. I said, but is that really free? And they started to realize that you're actually only free if you know the purpose of the piano and use it accordingly, which only happens with discipline and time and commitment to something. So I was trying to flip in their mind from saying, look, freedom's not just doing anything you feel like doing. That's actually bondage. Can you imagine if I lived my life based on every impulse that I have? I'd wreck my health. I'd wreck my family. (laughs) I'd wreck my finances. I mean, part of being a mature person is resisting certain feelings and impulses. And that's true in sports, right? The free person, you think about great players like Kobe Bryant, he's one of the freest players ever because he disciplined his mind and his body and learned the rules and could just play at a level level above virtually anyone who's ever lived. Mm -hmm. So that piano metaphor, I say you want to be free to play a piano. It's not just banging the keys. It's actually time and discipline. Mm -hmm. So let's apply that to sexuality. It's the same thing. You've actually got to learn to cultivate a certain character. You got to develop certain habits. You have to say no to certain things. Just like piano players says, I'd rather sit down and watch TV. I'm going to say no to that, and I'm going to choose to practice the piano. Mm-hmm. Well, the same applies in relationships and our character. And I'm not saying this is a salvation by works, not this slavish yeah. discipline. People hear that, but it does take discipline and habit and commitment. So I actually frame it, interestingly enough, that way in the book to students. I say, look, the call of Jesus is rewarding, but it's not easy to resist certain messages in our culture. But guess what? Tough things are valuable. Mm -hmm. Stuff we sacrifice for is stuff that ultimately matters in our life. 
it's worth sacrificing for mm-hmm. to follow the biblical view that Jesus lays out on sexuality. So yeah. I'm just trying to reorient uh, freedom in their life uh, from the way that they've imbibed it from, I think, our secular culture. Does that does that tend to land well when you explain it like that? Because, I mean, it, intellectually, it sounds good. Does it do they actually like, ah, I, yeah, I, I want to build this into my life or does it depend on? Probably depends on the kid well, a bit. <laughs> so that that's a great question. I think students, the first part, when I walk them through the nature of freedom and explain freedom for, students go, oh, my iPhone is made for something. It's only when I know what it's for and use it accordingly that it's free. So I think they haven't thought through that idea. The piano metaphor makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I've never had a resistance to go, no, I'm more free if I can just bang on a piano and ruin it. Like I've never got that nihilistic response yet. <laughs> but then when a kid actually goes out and chooses to do it and put these disciplines into their life, that's where the rubber meets yeah. the road and that's where it's tougher. So it's one thing to agree intellectually. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to put it into practice and do it. Would you Would you say, as you're talking, I was thinking, trying to formulate like a real succinct definition of freedom from a Christian perspective. Would it be something like living according to the creator's design or how, how would you frame it? Because I hear you kind of tapping into these yeah. broader creational themes. Um, I, think th- I think that's exactly right. My dad would often define it for me. He'd say freedom is having the capacity to do okay. what you ought to do. Okay. So it's a certain strength and capacity that we have built into our character to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. But I typically frame it more the way that you do. I say freedom is living consistently with our design. Right. In fact, to be honest, sometimes I'll say freedom is orienting, and I intentionally choose that word. Yeah. Freedom is orienting our life to line up with God's design for how we're meant yeah. to live. I like that better. I remember hearing um... – Gosh, this comes way, way back in my when I was deep in my MacArthur days, um, hearing him say something like freedom is the ability to finally do what's right in life, you know, and I, mm. I, I didn't disagree with it, but it felt a little bit like heavy on the moral Yep. Um, which is obviously an important part, but there's it's not just right. It's also good for you and good for others and good for creation. Like there is something a little bit more ingrained in the very order of creation that I think also needs to be brought in. And that does feel a little more in, in this, in 2020, that feels a little more compelling too, because there is this concern that biblical morality is just arbitrary. Just God, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. You know, and that worked for maybe our generation and certainly for boomers, but that doesn't, it just feels a little bit like not very compelling if that's all it is. Just God's barked it out from heaven, do it, you know, and, and you and I can say like, well, if he's God, he has a right to do that. Right. <laughs> sure, sure. Which I, and that's, that's kind of the way I see it, but I don't know. I, I, I think it, it does feel more compelling when you integrate beauty in the picture. Like this is not just morally mm. right. It's the most beautiful. It's the most, it resonates with the way the creator has wired creation. It will lead to flourishing both among humanity and creation. Um, uh, by the way, I, th- I, I think that's right. And I, so I, I intentionally have, have adapted that definition a little bit rather than just doing what is right, but orienting our life yeah. according to the creator's plan. Cause it raises a question, okay, who is this creator and what is it? What is his mm-hmm. plan? for how we are supposed to live. It brings the question back to, is there a designer in the universe or not? And that's ultimately the question that I think this is going to come back to when it's all said and done with young people. You know, what's interesting is the, the early Stoics had a very similar, um, 
huh. way of thinking, living according to nature was the way they framed it. Um, and there's been I've, I'm one of my best my best friend Joey Dodson. He's done a lot of work comparing Paul's ethics with Stoic ethics, and it's huh. it's pretty remarkable the similarities there. It's I mean there's almost like whole quotes. Um, not just Paul, but the New Testament that resonate almost exactly with like Seneca and others. I mean, um, some of the early fathers apparently thought Seneca might have gotten a free pass into heaven because he so resonated with uh, the way the Christian life. Obviously, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit wasn't there, and there's some sure, differences. Sure. Obviously, Christological differences, but it is that as far as ethical structures go. Very similar. In fact, I mean, the Stoics were one of the few Greco-Roman philosophers that um disagreed with same sex sexual relationships and even their their reasoning they use that whole um uh against nature that Paul uses and I mean I think Paul actually tapped into some yeah. of his Greco-Roman sentimentalities um in Romans 1 when he said it's you know goes against nature now now of course when the stoic says against nature Paul would say going against the creator's design uh, you know but yes. yes the the practic- the 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 payoff is very similar though it's so um, yeah, that's fascinating. But that whole idea of like, why is this morally wrong? And if you say, well, it goes against nature, the way creation's wired. So it just doesn't, <laughs> they're like, so what, you know, <laughs> it brings me pleasure. That, that's kind of what I face, yeah. but I'm not as eloquent as you in, in <laughs> these metaphors and stuff. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know about that, but I know people think in metaphors. And in fact, to go back to purity culture, some of the damage arguably was just unhelpful metaphors that were yeah. used in purity culture yeah. at times that we could all think of. So I try to think through what are some helpful metaphors that bring it back to, you know, a scriptural view of yeah. sexuality that'll stick in kids' minds. Yeah. And the piano one, I think, you know, they remember. I like so. that. I like that. Real quick, we've, um, uh, I want to go to your main area of apologetics. This is something that you, you have a, um, a PhD in, right? And then you, this is the main area you work in, um, defending the faith, uh, responding to specifically atheists, arguments against Christianity. Can we, can we swim in those waters for a little bit? Cause this is not of my course, area. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, I come across it from time to time. Um, how, how would you say apologetics has shifted for you? If it has say 20 years ago to now, I mean, there's been so many cultural shifts. Has that influenced the way you go about, uh, defending the faith and responding to, uh, arguments against Christianity? You know, I guess one way to compare this since you said 20 years ago would be to look at – I helped my father update his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. First wrote it in 1972, uh, update in the 80s, update, early 90s, and then the last update, this big gold cover was 1999, so about 20 years ago. Wow. Then we updated it, and it came out in 2017. So going back and looking at this book that was kind of definitive for apologetics in that area era and how do we change it for today, I think encapsulates Mm -hmm. a lot of the question that you're asking. So I guess we changed on a few things. Number one was uh, probably a little bit of the tone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you look at the way apologetics was done 70s and 80s and 90s. And things, you state them very confidently. You state things strongly. You make your case as strong as you possibly can. And in some ways, when I think about my father being in these free speech platforms debating Marxists in front of rallies, 
you can't sit around and nuance and go, well, you know, scholars say this. I mean, you've got to just communicate a certain fashion to survive in that culture. Like I get that, but the culture has clearly changed. So if you overstate stuff now, you lose credibility because yeah. somebody's sitting there Googling it going, wait a minute, here's somebody <laughs> smart who says the opposite. So we went through very, very carefully and just said, okay, is does the conclusions we're drawing match the evidence that we give as best as we possibly could? We don't want to understate the evidence, but we don't want to overstate it. So it came to archaeology at the very end. You know, in previous decades, there are statements that say, like, archaeology unequivocally shows the Bible is true. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at the end of the section, and the way we worded it was archaeology – something like this. Archaeology is one um, considerable factor to help us know that the Bible's trustworthy. That's like, funny, okay, yeah. we're not overstating it. Yeah. We've nuanced it a little bit. It's helpful. Yeah. So – one of the ways apologetics is done is just try not to overstate things, okay. nuance things. That's an example. Other things that have shifted would just be the kinds of questions that people are asking. Okay. So in the 99 version, there was a smaller section on the existence of Jesus, but that wasn't a very significant issue. Hardly as many people doubted it. But this mythicism really arose and took off into the 2000s denying that Jesus existed. Not in a scholarly levels. That's yeah. not significant at all. You can count on two hands the number of yeah. genuine scholars who doubt the existence of Jesus who have any kind of faculty position that, that I'm aware of. <laughs> yeah. But on the internet, it's huge. I mean, really? a lot of people, I get comments on social media every day. Don't you know that Jesus was copied from Osiris? I'm like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> so we added a, a whole chapter on like just establishing that Jesus existed okay. and responding to this pagan mythology claim. Okay. So that was an example. Um, there's some other issues we took out. Like, for example, in the Old Testament, the JEPD theory yeah. about multiple authors, that was huge in the 80s and 90s. Okay. That's just relegated to one chapter that was at that time the okay. entire section almost of the Old Testament. So wow. there's some other areas where arguments have shifted. But essentially in the book, we updated the classic arguments like Lord Liar Lunatic, mm -hmm. the prophecy chapter, took some other ones out, added some new ones in. So I had a chapter on my dissertation on the deaths of the apostles. What do we really know about them dying as martyrs and what that means for the faith? So I guess to sum up, I would say apologetics has shifted uh, I think the debate culture was huge in the 80s and 90s, and there's still some debates online, but personally I've done academic debates. I think substantive conversations are much more valuable for right. people that rather than sitting down trying to up somebody in an academic setting with a 20, 30-minute speech, we sit down and respectfully treat each other kindly and model that mm -hmm. and have some substance to it. Yeah. The time I've had those engagements, people really tend to appreciate that in a way that I'm not sure they did as much, you know, 80s and 90s, et cetera. So that's a few of the of the changes. I've, I, and I, I haven't paid attention to the movement, but just anecdotally, it seems that in the past, like having lots of data and facts on your side seemed to carry weight, where now it seems like just the emotional kinds of arguments mm -hmm seem to carry weight or has it always been that way? I don't know. I just, um, it seems like now like data and facts yeah. after a while people are like, yeah, maybe, 
maybe somebody else has a bunch of different data and facts to disagree with all that. And, you know, I'll handpick which set of data and facts I'm going to choose. You know, it just becomes almost very arbitrary. Um, you know, I, I think there's some truth to that. In, in writing this book with my dad, I asked him a ton of questions about, like, how this has changed in half a century. Yeah. And he's spoken on 1,200 university campuses. Wow. And he said, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, when he would say the resurrection is true, the challenge was give me some facts, yeah. prove it, give me evidence. And then into the 90s and 2000s, you start to see the shift of like, you're intolerant. You're bigoted. Okay. Yeah. Guy, that's hateful. What right do you have yeah. to say that? Not everybody says that. I mean, if you frame an issue a certain way, often people will follow your leading. Yeah. But those voices have changed significantly. Well, you're a white male, so we expect you to say that anyways. This is a power play by you. Yeah. Like those kinds of conversations have shifted more recently that did not exist, at least on his experience, when you go back a few decades ago. So it does shape the way we have to do apologetics and make a case differently than we did in the past. That's yeah, no, I get that a lot. I mean, in spaces I run, you know, you're a, a white straight male. How dare you talk about this issue or that issue? I'm like, first of all, I don't know how the whiteness. I mean, the overwhelming majority of non-white people in the, all around the globe agree with me here. So, <laughs> I mean, since my whiteness <laughs> is a minority global That's true. Uh, <laughs> perspective, but I mean, just because I'm, you know, f I mean, for instance, and and, and I and I. I think uh, it, some of it's a reaction because of so much abuse and bullying and damage that has been done with people that have this kind of higher status, um, perceived privilege sure. or privilege. Um, so I, so I, I understand it, it's coming out of a place of pain, but it's just, it doesn't, I, after a while, it just kind of felt like, well, that, that's, that's a, I mean, that, that's an accusation. It's not like an argument. Like, do you have, like, is there something in the, the content of what I'm saying that you can find substantively wrong? And do you have superior evidence for an alternative view that out, that overrules the evidence I've given, you know, but I've, mm. when I, even, even when I talk like that, it's just kind of like, well, you're a bigot. I'm like, well, I, okay, maybe. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't help us in the actual content of the conversation. But um... I think, I, I think we still need to make an apologetic, but the way I, I think about it like this is I think there's timeless issues and there's timely issues. So timely issues right now are clearly race and justice sure. issues. They're timeless in one sense, but they're very pressing in our culture right now. LGBTQ issues, at least in the past you know, decade plus, very timely, so to speak. But there's timeless issues like reliability of scripture, yeah. the deity of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection. So a lot of, say, that book, Evidence Demands Verdict, is laying out the timely – or I'm sorry, the timeless issues. Okay. But as I present those timeless issues, like I talk to students on the resurrection, the kinds of objections that I know they have in the audience now – are different than the kind of objections they might have had 10, 20, 30 years ago. So I try to subtly work them into my presentations okay. to remove that uh, in a way I didn't have to say a couple decades ago. So one way like on the resurrection it's shifted is you go back a few decades and there were common objections people had like, well, they went to the wrong tomb or Jesus didn't die on the cross or the apostles stole the body. Yeah. These, nat these kind of alternative hypotheses were very common for people to bring up, even going back really to the 1800s. But 
today what happens, the biggest objection in people's minds, I would argue, is this sense of naturalism. Like just miracles don't really happen. Mm. Science has solved everything. And so it's this presupposition rather than I know God could do a miracle, but in this case, he just didn't. So the way I approach and do a presentation on the resurrection would differ than if I did it two or three decades ago, even though probably 90% of the evidence, so to speak, might be the same. What do you think – what would you say is the strongest argument in your mind for the existence of God? That's a, such a big question, but I would, um, yeah. and then I, and then I would, I, I'm going to ask after that, what's the strongest counter arguments against Christianity that you find most difficult yep. maybe to wrestle with and respond to? So I will answer your question, but I do think the way I approach apologetics is it's a cumulative okay. case. So when I lay out for people, I don't go, this one argument is going to fix it for you. Rather, I yeah. say there's a range of evidences okay. that all point towards this truth. Um, but with that said, if I had to pick, I would I would pick one or two. Scientifically, I think the cosmological argument is really strong. I mean, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Yeah. Therefore, the universe had a cause. It's simple. It's direct. The premises are almost undoubtedly more likely true than not. And I think it's appealing. We know something doesn't come from nothing. So I think the cosmological argument, if I just had one scientific argument – I'd probably point towards that. But with that said, probably because it's intellectual and existential is the moral argument. I think the moral argument is powerful. Hmm. I mean, we don't live in a relativistic society. People are not relativistic. I mean, they are quick to shame you and attack you, (laughs) shame me, attack me. Everybody has some moral standard by which they're looking at the world. It's inescapable. Mm-hmm. But the, and this is Romans too. You mm-hmm. know, people know because it's written on their hearts. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something just powerful and intuitive and experiential about the moral argument that the cosmological might appeal to more philosophical mm-hmm. or scientific-minded, but the moral argument appeals to everybody of every background who's human. So if I just had one for the existence of God, I probably would use the moral argument. Okay. And what, okay, and the counter arguments against Christianity. Yeah, I think clearly the problem of evil yeah. and or the hiddenness of God is oh, the that's, toughest. That's exactly and, it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? That's because it it's not only a, there's a logical challenge, but I think it's experiential as well. I mean, we look at the world and we think, gosh, if I were God, I would stop all this right. injustice going on in America, which is just the beginning. I'd stop. Look at what happened in you know Beirut with this explosion. Yeah. Look what's happening in other parts of the Middle East. Look at Latin America. Like, look at all these people suffering. Mm-hmm. If I was God, I would stop this. He doesn't. Maybe God's not there or God's not yeah. good is the inference. And we feel it because yeah. we've seen evil. We've experienced evil. I think that's – Hands down. Yeah. In fact, I one philosopher said to me recently, he said, basically, it's all the evidence in favor of God against the problem of evil. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I thought, well, <laughs> the way, well, let me say this just so you don't think I'm repeating what you're about to say, because I, I want to ask you, how do you respond to that? How do you work through the problem of evil? Because that, that's exactly my, and more and more as I'm more honest with my own self and the faith, I am more readily uh, willing to admit that, not just admit, but say, yeah, I, I have a problem with that. <laughs> um, and, mm. and I know all the textbook answers to it and all of them, you know, some are better than others, but at the end of the day, it's still just 
uh, doesn't sit well with me. Um, and the hiddenness of God. Yeah, if I was God, I would stand up on a cloud, shout down and say, I am real. I'm like, well, God's doing yeah. that through creation. Well, no, I mean like an audible. I mean yep. like a, not a tree. The yep. tree testifies to God's goodness, whatever. Like, say so even that, like I don't like those kind of like Christianese responses because mm. while they may be true in and of themselves, it still doesn't sound convincing, you know? Um, so yeah, I get that. For, for me, um, I typically, when I go through periods of doubt, questioning, whatever, I always look at Christianity, not in isolation, but among all the various options. Um, yep. So you, pay, you place, you know, religion against non-religion, God from no God. And when I look at no God, that I'm like, oh, that that's so unconvincing to me on so many levels. And I'm sorry to my atheist friends who are like, how could you not be convinced? Look around. Obviously there's no God. I'm like, look around. I just see God everywhere. Um, so then it's a, then it's like, okay, which religion is the most compelling? Um, and as you go through that, I'm like, yeah, of the options, I think the Christian reflection on who this divine being is makes the most sense on so many different uh, levels. Um, is that, I don't know, I, is that okay that I reason that way? Is that <laughs> um, Well, I, I, I hope so because I reason the same way. Okay. I, I think of the story where, you know, Jesus says something seemingly offensive to people. They walk away and he says to Peter, <laughs> you know, are you going to leave too? And he's like, where would I go? Yeah. Like, I actually think about that a lot. Yeah. I'm like, okay. guy, hell, that's tough. Yeah. That's yeah. difficult. Uh, genocide in the Old Testament. I'm not yeah. going to lie. Like, that's a difficult one to work through. I mean, there's tough issues mm-hmm. and there's responses we could talk about, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But at at the end of the day, I think, you know what, where am I going to go? What worldview makes more sense of more things in reality as a whole mm-hmm. than the Christian worldview? Mm-hmm. And when I frame it that way, I don't think any other worldview is close to Christianity. Yeah. But that certainly doesn't mean there's not emotional struggles and intellectual questions and things I don't know within the worldview. So I just – give myself i have to give myself permission to yeah. frame it that way okay. and the older i get the more messy things get i right. i mean, honestly find myself resonating more and more with joe when i was younger i was like come on god like just tell them just give them an answer the older i get i'm like gosh there's a lot of wisdom here yeah. in this book about trusting the difference between the creature and the creator and then ultimately back to genesis chapter one you know why does god give the commandment don't eat the fruit like, my goodness, it looked tasty. Fruit is made to be eaten. You know, as our friend Rachel Gilson says, why didn't he just say, don't murder Eve? <laughs> it doesn't perfectly make sense, but there's a trust that's built into that command. Yeah. Can I trust who God is? Yeah. Or Jesus is in particular, especially looking back at the Old Testament. That's that's how I frame it and look at it. Yeah, that's good. I guess the only other, so like if I can create some sort of hybrid between deism and Zoroastrianism, you know, deism <laughs> solves the hiddenness of God. It's like, yeah, he's not, doesn't claim to be near. And then Zoroastrianism has this, you know, good and evil are on equal par. So all the bad stuff in the world is because evil is winning. And you know, <laughs> sure, I'm not trying to start a movement or cult here, Sean. I'm just thinking. All that. No, go, go for but it. Even, you, but even that know. leads to just dark, weird uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, that, that creates it. That's the thing. Whenever we think we can create a better alternative, it leads to its own internal problems, inconsistencies. And the fact is we 
we're better at being created than thinking we're the creator, you know. Um, That's right. And that that's back to what C.S. Lewis said. He's like, am I like who's in the dock here? Is right. it humans who are in the dock yeah. or is it God who's in the dock? You know, and if I if if God really exists, wouldn't I expect there to be things about him I don't understand and maybe exactly. don't like? I yeah. think I would expect that. Yeah. So I actually ask myself that all the time. I go, okay, you know, Calvinism, Arminianism debate. Am I believing what I want to be yeah. here because it seems to match up? Or am I actually believing what Scripture says and willing to change my mind? Yeah. I mean, that's a question I ask on a lot of different issues. Uh, but so like, is, yeah. you know, even even like Zoroastrian and Deism, like obviously you go, okay, Deism gets rid of the hiddenness of God, but you also lose – Jesus stepping yeah. <laughs> into nature and all the things he did. Yeah. Like, okay, not quite comfortable doing that. You know, yeah. that's where I keep coming back to this Christian worldview when in my mind I do the same exercise yeah. you did. You know, like, what about this? What about that? I just keep coming back to the Christian faith. Yeah. Yeah, deism would lead to theistic nihilism, I think, wouldn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, well, if God's that distant, then I don't care what he told me to do. You know, like... <laughs> <laughs> kind of like the absent father. It's like, well, why am I going to mm-hmm. obey my father's morality when he doesn't even live here anymore? You know? So, um, yeah, yeah, that's not a good option. Don't start a cold. Hey, Sean, thanks so much for being on the show. <laughs> Appreciate you. Talk to you for hours about, we didn't cover I mean, there's a zillion other topics that we have common interests in, but thanks for your work. Appreciate your humility, honesty, wisdom, and just glad, glad you're, you're, uh, glad we're on the same team, man. Oh, me too. Love, uh, <laughs> love the show. I listen to it pretty regularly wow. uh, to most episodes as I can. Appreciate your voice and just love hanging out. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. Go buy his book, uh, Chasing Love. Chasing Love will come out uh, whenever this releases. Be out in December. Yeah.